Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. If you are a fan of theatre and musical theatre in Australia, or if you're a performer in the theatre and musical theatre sectors, you'll probably be aware that the sector has something of a problem with whitewashing. There's a lack of culturally diverse performers on our stage to the extent that often international artists are sometimes flown into the country to take on roles that could be performed by Australian artists. The issue being that the artists aren't there. It's just that the producers and casting agents don't seem to know where to look for them. Often the the comment, there's just not that many of them, gets used, which is kind of ridiculous, particularly when you consider the very many talented people who have been selected for the Artists of Colour initiative, which is a competition designed to provide financial support and industry training for Australian-based theatre performers who identify as black, indigenous or people of colour. The top six finalists in the Artists of Colour initiative were announced yesterday. Joining us on the line to tell us more, the founder of the initiative, Tarek Frimpong. Tarek, thanks for joining us on Triple R. Hello, thank you so much for having me. A very great pleasure. In terms of the impetus or the seed for the Artists of Colour initiative, tell us how it began and how it got to this point where you've announced six remarkably talented finalists uh, for the competition. Right, so yes, we're at a really exciting stage of the competition right now where just yesterday we got to announce our top six, which is incredibly exciting, and all six of those applicants will be receiving a series of prizes, including financial assistance, which you touched on, which we've been fundraising via our GoFundMe and already assisted over $30,000, which is incredibly exciting, as well as industry assistance in other forms such as singing lessons, headshot packages, creative business mentoring sessions, and a whole bunch of other exciting things. But if I guess I head back to the start and kind of, as you mentioned, what what the impotence was for everything. The initiative was born from a recognition of the underrepresentation of black, indigenous, and black and indigenous people, as well as people of colour, in the Australian musical theatre industry. So the aim of our scholarship, the aim of the competition, was to ensure greater participation within the field of musical theatre amongst these marginalised communities. Certainly the ongoing issue around cultural diversity in the Australian theatre landscape, it's an issue that's not going away, despite the fact that some people might want it to. Earlier this year, for example, there was quite a bit of publicity around the Rob Guest endowment, the fact that their semi-finalists did not reflect the cultural landscape of contemporary Australia. And we've seen shows like Kinky Boots and, I believe, more recently Pippin importing performers because allegedly the quality of artists of colour here in Australia just isn't up to scratch internationally, which seems deeply unfair. How much are you hoping that the Artist of Colour initiative will help turn the tables on some of those preconceptions and cliches and the lack of representation in the Australian theatre landscape? Absolutely. I'm really hoping that the AOC initiative is able to tackle those exact things you mentioned and realistically just the systemic issues that are prevalent throughout the industry head on and I hope that it's a multi-pronged attack. I think we've really established a sense of community with a number of artists of colour from Australia, which is really exciting. As you mentioned earlier in your introduction, there's quite often this phrase thrown out by casting directors or producers that there's just not that many of us. But we had almost 70 applicants apply for the AOC initiative. We have a panel of 25 incredibly talented and and marvellous performers, creatives, directors, 
MDs and activists, all of whom identify as either black, indigenous or as people of colour. So we definitely exist in this space and we're here and ready to do the work. Well, as we've seen with the casting announcement this week of Hamilton, I think there's only two imports from the US in that cast and otherwise it's uh, artists of colour from Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. So clearly there are high quality, high calibre performers here. It's perhaps that the industry is just not looking hard enough. So something like the Artists of Colour Initiative not only flying the flag to say that people are here, but basically challenging the industry to do better. Absolutely. No, that, that's, you put it perfectly there. I think it's a lot to do with, too, if there's, there are these systemic issues in place, if an artist of colour has received certain treatment or has, has seen other artists of colour receive certain treatment in certain institutions or with certain casting teams or with certain producers, there's going to be this feeling of not feeling welcomed in that space. And, and when you don't feel welcome in that space, you don't have the opportunity to thrive in that space. If you don't have the opportunity to thrive in that space, it's unlikely that you're willing to show up in that space over time. So it's kind of this cycle that absolutely needs to be broken. I think AOC Initiative is doing exactly that. It's full of love and leading with love. It's about a celebration and a championing and an uplifting of all artists of colour in the Australian musical theatre industry. Back in October, you announced the 30 semi-finalists for the Artists of Colour Initiative. That this week, the six finalists from those 30 talented semi-finalists have been selected and I suspect that I do not envy the judges the the process of having to whittle down a, a talented list to this group of six performers but tell us about the six people who've been selected as the finalists all of whom will be receiving some of that funding that's being raised through the crowdfunding process as you said the winner will receive a large chunk of it but the money will be divided up amongst all of them. Absolutely, yeah, you're exactly correct. It is an incredibly difficult decision that has to be made by our panel. In saying that, it was actually an incredibly difficult decision just to select the top six out of the top 30 because there was just so much talent and people displaying such passion and strength in different disciplines, which was really exciting, and and such creativity, such resourcefulness, which was incredibly inspiring for for myself as I sat there with a lot of the other panellists and watched their material. Our final six, our finalists are Grace Driscoll, Lauren Chiot, Martha Bahane, Jared Draper, Milo Hartil Bastietswe, and Raphael Wong. These performers are absolutely the future of the Australian musical theatre industry. They're so, so exciting. I think it's important to remember these names and remember these faces because I think we're going to see a lot more of them in the future. As you said, there is a crowdfunding program in place to raise the prize money. It's currently at over 30000 through the GoFundMe campaign with the target now set at 40000 100% of that money will go to the finalists with the winner receiving 50% of the funds, the runner-up receiving 20% of the funds and the final four receiving 7.5 each of the funds. And then there's also arts business mentorships on offer, the Patrick School of the Arts is offering one or two scholarships as well. These people will not just get money recognition, they will also get the kind of really valuable training that's necessary to think about a career in the arts, both on stage and off stage. Exactly, yeah. It's more than just exactly the financial prize, as you said. It it really is that support and that industry assistance, which I think is just as important as the the financial element of the prize. And as you said, it's really exciting that we're able to offer 100% of the donations that we receive by our GoFundMe to be split amongst all six of the finalists as opposed to just going to the AOC initiative winner. I think that's a really exciting part of the 
competition for me, knowing that I'm trying to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And yeah, it's about community. It's such a laudable and such a significant initiative, the fact that it's not just one winner, but a number of people benefiting and a broader spotlight being shone on the industry generally. Tarek, when will you be announcing the ultimate winner, the grand finalist of the Artists of Colour initiative, given that you yesterday announced the top six finalists? Absolutely. Submissions closed for the finalists on the 5th of December. And it will be shortly after that date, give or so a week or week and a half, when the AOC Initiative winner will be announced, which is incredibly exciting just to say that. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to the announcement myself as well. If people would like to learn more about the Artists of Colour Initiative and how to support it, you can go to aocinitiative.com and from there you'll also find a link to the GoFundMe page where you can donate to increase the prize pool for these six talented finalists who've been selected for the Artists of Colour initiative, but it's gofundme.com forward slash f forward slash artists hyphen of hyphen colour hyphen initiative. If that sounds tricky, as I said, just go to aocinitiative.com and you can find out more information there about the Artists of Colour initiative itself, the semi-finalists and the crowdfunding campaign. I've been chatting with Tarek Frimpong, the founder of the Artists of Colour initiative. Tarek, thank you so much for your time and thank you for, as I say, again, such an important initiative for for the Australian theatre and musical theatre sector generally. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and helping spread the word regarding this really important issue for our industry. So thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. And I look forward to the announcement soon uh, to find out who the winner is. Yes. <laughs> You'll hear from us shortly. Spiro Economopoulos is the director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, whose uh, program this year, back in March, was one of those festivals that was caught up in the COVID closures. Spiro, you were, what, four or five days into your program when everything ground to a halt? Hey, Richard, yes, we were. So we kind of got, I think, four days in, and then the Sunday night, I think, was the the last kind of screening, and uh, we all kind of went into lockdown, which was... Uh, pretty crushing um, and very difficult, obviously, um, but, uh, you know, here we are. So crushing uh, in a number of ways, I would imagine, because you put blood, sweat and tears into putting a program together only for most people not to be able to see some of the gems in the program, which is why MQFF, Melbourne Queer Film Festival, is back with MQFF Interrupted, a new online mini-festival. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I'm so thrilled that we were able to, you know, A, find a way to kind of uh, continue the festival sort of during this whole, you know, 2020, that is a year that I'm going to put behind me very quickly. And it's been great to be able to finally, you know, showcase all those films that we, you know, we had planned back in March. And as you're saying, you know, like the festival, and you would know too, you know, the festival is a, you know, it's a year long process and kind of getting that whole thing up. And so, and, you know, this year was our 30th anniversary as well. So it was meant to be like a, you know, a celebration. And so I'm so happy that we can um, finally get those films in front of our auditors because. The key elements for me are the filmmakers and the audience. And, you know, I think I really wanted to you know, honour, you know, those filmmakers and go, hey, we're going to still show your films. Festivals, a lot of times, are the only opportunities. Um, these films get to be seen. They don't all end up on Netflix or on streaming channels or, you know, like, you know, somewhere to rent. Like, a lot of times these films you won't see again. So 
I'm just really excited that we can do that and support them in, in some way. I mean, that's a really important point to make, I think, that the films that are screen, screaming, screaming? Screening in, <laughs> in something like the documentary shorts program that you've assembled, yeah. features may get a release eventually, uh, whether on streaming mm. services or through uh, Blu-ray or DVD by one of the, yeah. the, the labels around the world that still release, uh, like Accent, for example, or others that release yeah. queer cinema. But kind of short films, short documentaries in particular, mm. short dramas, short animations, yeah. without film festivals to support them, kind mm. of, uh, would definitely struggle to find an audience. So let's talk about some of the, the shorts packages that you've got in the festival. Yeah, look, we've got actually, um, I always kind of really love, um, I mean, I really, really enjoy putting our shorts packages together, I have to say. That's kind of one of my favourite parts of the festival. There's some really fantastic films out there, a lot, a lot to choose from, and sometimes it's pretty hard to kind of narrow it down. But I think, you know, this year in particular, like, we, we've done the animation shorts package in the past and sort of on and off, and I was really happy to bring that back. There's a... The animation short package is really wonderful. There is an absolutely fantastic film in there called Top Three from Sweden, which is really great. And, you know, I really kind of hope people get to see that film. It's actually one of the longest ones in the package. It's uh, 44 minutes long, but um, it's a really, really wonderful film. And um, I really hope people get to see that. Um, and our documentary shorts package um, is always great. You know, I think those sort of, Mixed packages can kind of give you an opportunity as a programmer to kind of show a lot of the diversity of, um, you know, the films and the filmmakers and some of the genres and also some of the subject matters. And uh, the documentary shorts has a, you know, a really, really great selection of films, including a fantastic one called uh, Stanley Stella Here for a Reason about a, a photographer who documented queer lives, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s. Um, and it's really wonderful, like really beautifully made. In terms of putting the program together for MQFF Interrupted, obviously part of the work has already been done in terms of curating the festival program for what was supposed to be the, the 30th MQFF uh, in its truncated form earlier this year. But to put these films online, talk to us about the the negotiations you must have yeah. had with the filmmakers because I would imagine there would be um, uh, some filmmakers who would just be saying, no, you can't put it online because people yeah. will pirate it. I don't want mm. that to happen. Others who would be saying, yes, you can put it online, but it has to be a really narrow window so that people kind of have a, can still see it, but to minimise the chances of it being pirated, for example. And others, I'm sure, would say, well, you had a distribution deal back in March. Kind of, mm. If we're going to revisit that, we're already in negotiation with person yeah. X to, to present it there. So talk to us about mm. how challenging it's been to try and get it, this online streaming program together. Yeah, look, it ha you look, all of those things, it's been a really, really complicated process, to be honest with you. And I think what's been interesting for me is that when, I, when, it, when the festival was first cancelled back in March, I, I started early conversations back then with filmmakers and sales agents and just kind of, I guess, testing the waters about how they would feel if we did kind of move a lot of the stuff online. And back then, there was a lot of resistance, but obviously as the year rolled out and as what we were going through was kind of the new normal, I think a lot of filmmakers and sales agents begin to began to sort of adjust to that kind of reality. And so when I reached back again, sort of later on in the year, 
it was a whole different ball game and people were more kind of um, into it, I guess. And, I mean, all those concerns, of course, were the things that people had were piracy, you know, little complications as well, like, you know, if someone had, had done a deal with a streaming service, suddenly they can't give you the film because that's considered direct competition all of a sudden because you're online as well. And there were just sort of little things like that that became really tricky and, and not... It wasn't a one-size-fits-all anymore, so some films would only allow us to have the film on for 24 hours, for example, or for three days, or you know, only available for people to watch within a smaller window. So you had to kind of be flexible because I think everyone was... Um, you know, was learning, you know, on the job and sort of trying to adjust to what that looked like. But I think as the year rolled out, I think people saw a lot of those models kind of play out. And I actually, one of the things that I did that was really great was I, I sort of formed a little, well, it was part of a little alliance of um, queer film programmers, mostly in North America and Canada. And it was really great to connect up to all of them. we kind of meet weekly and chat and just kind of, you know, talk about what their models are and what they're doing online. And, you know, we became a bit of a support network more than anything, but it was really interesting to kind of hear what they were doing as well. I'm curious to know about the challenge for audiences in watching these films online, because as you say, there are different uh, restrictions around viewing them. So uh, a film mm. like The Strong Ones, which is a drama yeah. out of Spain, is is geo-blocked uh, for Victoria only, so people interstate can't watch that, whereas another film uh, such as the Irish drama Rialto, which I'm really looking forward to seeing, uh, yeah. I had a ticket for it back in March and, of course, missed my chance, uh, that is not geo-blocked to Victoria, so it's going to be more broadly available to audiences perhaps out uh, elsewhere in Australia. Yeah, look, it's been... I mean, yeah, I mean, look, that, that was one of the other things, the other conditions as well, obviously, a lot of... Uh, actually, I think the Strong Ones maybe is one that is an Australian one. I think there was another one that was only Victoria. I could be wrong, I'll check. But um, the conditions, like, those kind of conditions were always the other thing that we had to kind of consider because, obviously, you know, filmmakers were still thinking about, you know, wanting to, you know, have a film debut at another state in Australia, for example. So suddenly you had to play that. But interesting enough, most filmmakers and sale agents were okay with an Australian geo-block, which was interesting. And I think for us as well, you know, it's new territory in terms of that idea, but also it means maybe there's an opportunity to get new auditors, particularly, you know, like in regional Victoria more importantly where sometimes it's not that easy for people to come to the festival or there's people that are you know vulnerable for one reason or another are unable to come and so suddenly we were kind of getting newer audiences interesting enough younger audiences which was really interesting as well um and i think the biggest challenge for us was trying to you know replicate i mean the our festival was about community coming together and watching queer films together and the biggest challenge for us was you know how do we do that online you know how do, is that going to work online but i think what we saw was that there was a real i guess a real kind of desire hunger for um some continuity and having the queer film festival there was something that was really important to a lot of people and it, even if it was at home it was a connection that people felt really strong to and really loved having. So we've had, you know, we've had a couple of one-off screenings and sort of, you know, trials of some mini, mini festivals and they've done really well. And so we've 
you know, feel really kind of fortunate that we can find a way to kind of continue through this and also, you know, bring, you know, queer films to our to our punters as well. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with Spiro Economopoulos from the Melbourne Queer Film Festival about MQFF Interrupted, their uh, festival from March being restaged online. If audiences want to get that sense, Spiro, of a, of a group viewing. Obviously, they can use the, the hashtag MQFF30 uh, to kind of acknowledge the, the festival's 30th anniversary and read through that kind of hashtag stream and see what other people are watching and viewing. It's not quite the same as being in an audience and having that shared emotional response to a film, but certainly uh, in, in the, the COVID climate, it's better than... It's much, much better than nothing at all. I wanted, Absolutely. I wanted to explore that to pick up on something you said earlier, particularly the fact that these films are now available and accessible to audiences in regional Victoria, for example. When it comes Mm. to trans representation uh, and lesbian representation, let's talk about those aspects of the the film programming because back in my day... an acknowledgement that I used to help program as a volunteer the the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, but that was about 20 years ago. There was definitely at that stage, it was a challenge to get kind of uh, lesbian cinema. The gay men were making films much more successfully, perhaps because they found it as men easier to get funded than women. uh, Because the the gender pay gap is still an issue in a variety of sectors, including film fundraising. Um, But it was interesting to know that about... 12 to 15 years ago, lesbian cinema was becoming much more confident and trans cinema was really starting to emerge as a really significant aspect of queer film programming. What are those kind of ratios and qualities of films like for kind of the lesbian and trans representation compared to kind of gay male representation? Yeah, look, I, we're finding, I mean, look, in particular, you know, with trans cinema, for example, that is that has exploded. Like, I think over the last, in particular, when I've been the program director over the last five years or so, um, that there has been an incredible sort of influx of trans cinema. And more importantly, trans films where the, the trans voice is central in front of the camera and also behind the camera. I mean, this year we're um, showing a film called Lingua Franca, which is one of the first trans films written, directed, and starring a trans woman of colour. And so Isabel Sandoval, um, you know, wrote, directed, and starred in this film. And so we're seeing films like that where the stories are actually kind of generated by trans filmmakers. And I think that's the kind of big shift as well. And I think MQFF, you know, well, I think festivals generally now are looking at films where, you know, the idea of a you know, cisgendered, you know, man or woman playing that trans role now is something that isn't the norm anymore and it's something that we used to kind of kind of sort of just kind of accept as something but now there is a real diversity of voices coming out and it's exciting and lesbian cinema the same i mean this uh interrupted pretty much has the same level of gay and lesbian films um you would have seen that ratio you know years ago being much more kind of skewered to gay males and lesbians but i mean that's really changed a lot as well and there's some really great really great lesbian sort of cinema coming out still and, you know, really exciting as well. The Melbourne Queer Film Festival Interrupted, MQFF Interrupted, is uh, running online from the 19th until the 30th of November with a range of features, short films and more to explore. There's a a detailed program. We can't talk about everything, but Spiro, there are a couple of films that you'd particularly like to recommend to Triple R audiences. Yeah, look, I gotta. I mean, I'll pick out a couple. Um, 
Their first time features as well, and always kind of it's always really exciting because you know you, you can see that you know these new voices that you're going to want to see more of. And one of them is a film called Makeup, which is a, by a British filmmaker called Claire Oakley, which is this really fantastic. It it coming it's sort of like a coming of age, coming out film, but it's got this really interesting kind of tone about it that starts off looking like. It, it could be like this kind of psychological thriller and something quite dark, but it sort of transforms into something else altogether. So Claire uh, really mixes really fantastic tones in that film and nuances, and it's a really, really interesting set in this small um, caravan park in the UK, and uh, um, it's really, really good. So I'm very excited to see you know what, what other films Claire's got coming up. And the other one is The Strong Ones, which you spoke about briefly. We'd actually had screened um, the short of this film. And a lot of times filmmakers will make a short movie and then as a calling card and eventually get to make a feature out of it. And um, the director of this, this Chilean filmmaker, made a short called San Cristobal, which we screened about four or five years ago. And this is a feature version with the same characters called The Strong Ones, which is really, really, really wonderful and fantastic central performances by the two men. And um, I really recommend that one. Lots to see and explore in MQFF Interrupted, running from the 19th to the 30th of November. Jump online, mqff.com.au, to find out all the details of the film's screening online uh, in this new iteration, this COVID-safe iteration of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. I've been chatting with the Program Director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, Spiro Economopoulos. Spiro, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you, Richard, and thanks so much for your support. appreciate it. Leslie Harding is the Artistic Director of Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Uh, and we've got a few things to talk about, Leslie. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Richard. Nice to be with you. And to kick things off, I believe you've got an announcement to make. We have. It's just hot off the press, actually. Um, we're delighted that we're going to open the doors to the museum again on the 28th of November, Saturday the 28th of November. Very soon. Fantastic. How long has Heidi been closed for? This must be kind of uh, probably the, the longest closure in its history. Oh, undoubtedly. Um, well, we've been closed since April and we opened for a minute, well, for a week or so um, on the 30th of June before the second lockdown in Victoria. So um, it's been much anticipated, this, this reopening, and not only for Heidi, but also for all the other uh, galleries and museums um, around Victoria which is fantastic that they are kind of reopening their doors. The commercial gallery sector has been able to open uh, a little bit earlier, uh, having argued successfully that they are retail premises. So, uh, uh, But, yeah, the, the fact that Heidi is reopening, the NGV has announced its reopening dates and so forth as well. And uh, with the reopening of Heidi, uh, it then gives you a chance to um, present an exhibition of Joy Hester's work. Yes, um, we're really pleased about that because um, this year marks the 100 years since Joy Hester was born. She was born in 1920 and we had long planned this exhibition in the planning for a number of years anyway and we were hoping very much to be able to um, present the exhibition to the public during that, that very important anniversary. So, um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful for us and we're really grateful to all of the um, public institutions and the private lenders who've made this possible. They've been incredibly patient. Um, their works will be out of their homes and out of their gallery stores for a, about 12 months all, all up. Um, 
but it's you know it's it's one of those things, and uh, everyone's worked with the, the ever changing circumstances and been incredibly generous. And if we're talking about artists who have that kind of intimate connection with Heidi, as well as the Joy Hester Remember Me Centenary Exhibition, you've also got the exhibition Albert Tucker Marking the Past, which will be showing until March. Yeah, that's right. That's a, a really interesting exhibition curated by um, an emerging curator who also happens to be a staff member at, at Heidi, Lilybell Virtual. And um, one of the, the really great things we've been doing with that particular program, which um, our regular visitors will be familiar with, is that we've been inviting um, external curators to come and work with the collection and think about Albert Tucker in different contexts according to their interests and various sort of expertises. And it's meant that the program's got this lovely kind of vitality about it. And, um, you know, Albert Tucker's never looked so good. One of the other things that, and what I initially expected to be talking to you about, was your plans for summer and 2021. Uh, the uh, Victorian state government earlier this week announced some additional funding to help bring the sector out of lockdown and also to bring the art sector outdoors. And I understand as part of that programming, Heidi has plans for a bit of a summer festival in the gardens. Yes, we're so blessed at Heidi to have a really beautiful outdoor space, a vast outdoor space with our sculpture park and our beautiful gardens. So we've planned to, you know, do the pivoting that many organisations have had to do and um, introduce it. Look, we've done this before, but I guess never on this scale, a, um, a series of performances working with um, organisations who obviously haven't been able to um, pay their performers and um, their musicians and, and so forth. Um, and who are, I guess, also facing continued restrictions in terms of audience numbers and so forth in, inside. Um, Heidi presents a really beautiful outdoor space um, to see some of the, the live um, performances that we've all been missing. So we have the Melbourne International Jazz Festival. Um, they're curating a series of jazz performances by Victorian artists across three Sundays in January. In February, we've got Songlines, um, presenting First Nations musicians, dancers and also storytellers. And um, Midsummer are joining us again. We've partnered with them before. They're curating a weekend in February, um, supporting the LGBTQIA plus community and, um, and various artists that they work with. And then finishing up with um, some... Um, Fantastic Balkan brass music so from the traditions of Serbia and so forth. So it's it's a really exciting program, I have to say. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but there probably is something for everybody amongst that, that offer. And of course, we do have beautiful exhibitions inside the museum as well. So it's a it's a great place. It's a great place for a full day out. It's a, a lovely combination, I have to say, of that idea of being able to bask in the sunshine and listen to live music and and live performance when you need uh, some air conditioning and some, some uh, visual rather than musical stimulus, wander into the gallery. Uh, and that program, that summer season at Heidi, is being supported by the government's, uh, the state government's announcement this week of, in total, $17.2 million to support the art sector, which is going for, to everybody, such as Art Centre Melbourne, uh, the uh, Melbourne Museum and others, including Heidi. So continued support by Creative Victoria and the state government, which is fantastic for the sector after the year that we've had and then looking forward uh, to next year proper uh, beyond summer through the rest of the year 2021 is a significant year for Heidi it's the 40th anniversary year yeah it is it's hard to believe actually because I remember as a younger person coming along to Heidi um, in its in its foundational years so Heidi opened in well in fact it's 
um, 39 years ago today, on the 12th of November 1981. And um, I think it's the 12th of November, I hope I've got that right. Um, and, you know, in, that, in those interviews, obviously when we first opened, the only um, museum space was the beautiful modernist building, Heidi 2 or Heidi Modern as we call it today. Um, and the museum has since, you know, really come of age. We've, um, we've opened up the Heidi Cottage, which was handed over to the museum after about Reed passed away um, in the late 1990s. And then, of course, um, the, the brand-new bespoke um, or purpose-built galleries of... Um, everybody knows so well, where we have host our major, uh, largely contemporary art or modernist thematic survey exhibitions. So, um, yeah, Heidi really has is um, mature now, I guess you could say, and we've got a, an exhibition program next year that kind of matches um, matches all of that. Um, a, a fantastic survey of much-loved um, and respected artist Robert Owen called Blue Over Time. Um, it's the first survey of his work in many, many years, and he's had a 60-year career. He's, um, his work is superlative, and we're really looking forward to um, finally bringing this exhibition to fruition. It's been in the planning also for a few years, and it was due to be shown um, last June. So um, Robert's been um, incredibly patient, but I think the exhibition will be all the more beautiful for the extra little bit of time. Um, we're, we're participating in the Photo 2020, or 2021 as it is now, festival, um, with an international artist, Agnieszka Polska. Um, so we're screening or doing the inaugural Australian screening of a really wonderful uh, video work of, of Agnieszka's called The New Sun. Um, Teradata um, Stanislava Pinchuk is um, having her first proper museum survey. She's shown in museums before, but um, people will know her from her work um, uh, under the under the alias Mizo. Um, but Stanislava is a really sophisticated, um, really intriguing contemporary artist um, who lives uh, across Australia and the Ukraine, and um, she's she's been holed up in in Australia. But we've been working together on um, bringing everything um, that's required for this, what will be a really, really beautiful but um, also a very moving exhibition, I think, because her work's very much about um, the way that the landscape and the environment um, reveal or, or um, host the kind of residues of trauma. Mm. And if we're talking about landscape, just to jump in there for a moment, the, uh, the healing garden, which will be opening at Heidi in 2021, perhaps is a response to trauma in some ways. It will be a place of, of rest uh, at Heidi. And, yeah. again, and again, inspired by the history of Heidi as well. It is very much so. It feels it's one of those projects that feels really right for Heidi. The Healing Garden is um, is located in a part of the old the original kitchen garden up near the Heidi Cottage, so up near Templestowe Road. Um, and that was revived by Sunday Reed when she first moved to Heidi in 1934. And she's always had always been interested in the healing properties of plants and their symbolic significance and the scents and so forth, and the medicinal um, elements. And we've, we've transformed a, a part of that garden, which I guess had... Um, it had changed somewhat during Barrett Reed's tenure in, in the building or um, on that part of the property and it really wanted some love <laughs> and it, it made a lot of sense um, for us to introduce this new sensory element into the garden. It's, it's 
a work in progress at the moment. We're hoping to open it um, sort of early-ish next year. Um, we're getting the last sort of formal and hard landscaping elements together, but um, a lot of the planting is underway, and by the time we open up, I hope all of those beautiful plants that have been placed in autumn and in spring will be... Um, um, maturing and you know doing what they need to do, so it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to share with um, a wider a wider audience for Heidi, and I hope it will attract um, a range of groups that don't always feel that they want to come into the into museum itself, but um, allow them to sort of enjoy the the sort of history and and the heritage and the um, the other aspects of Heidi that we're perhaps a little less known for. It certainly sounds like it's going to be not just obviously uh, a significant year in terms of the celebration of Heidi and its history, but kind of maintaining a significant commitment to the representation of female artists and just maintaining Heidi as a, uh, a place that represents significant artists regardless of gender, but artists who kind of deserve scrutiny, attention and, uh, and critical focus. Yeah, I think one of the, the, the really um, the great things about being, you know, a smaller art museum is that we can be quite agile, and also we can we can scoop up um, a whole net of mid-career, say, or artists who may have been overlooked. You know, Marjorie Hinder's a really good case in point. Um, we've been working with the Art Gallery of New South Wales on presenting um, her first. Would you believe she passed away quite some years ago? But her first um, retrospective, and she was in a wonderful marriage and partnership with a uh, partnership with her husband Frank and he's possibly the better known of the two but Marjorie really was um, a groundbreaking modernist artist and she really transformed the face of modern sculpture in Australia and um, really this is attention she has deserved for many many years so we're really delighted to be bringing um, her you know quite outstanding earth to um, a, a more general audience. For people who've never visited Heidi before, what's the most accessible aspect of the museum? Look, I think probably um, a lot of people, in fact, almost half of our audience come to the gardens and grounds, the sculpture park. Um, it's a very relaxed um, atmosphere and it's very, it's very informal but also very beautiful at the same time and, and quite stimulating. You can do a whole sculpture park tour if you want to or you can just simply enjoy being down near the Yarra River and enjoy the wide open spaces that we have at Heidi. So I think a point of difference for us really is that, that combination of art, art architecture and the landscape and I suppose it's a much more sort of intimate and, and personal kind of art experience at Heidi. You know, we don't have big edifices and grand um, you know, halls of, of, of displays of historic art. It's, it's very much um, more about trying to, to test the pulse a bit on contemporary art today, reflecting on the modernist history of Heidi but also the contributions that John Sunday Reid, but also people like Sidney Nolan have made to the Australian canon. And, you know, bringing all of that together in a, in a very sort of beautiful, um, restful location. I mean, um, John and Sunday Reid always saw Heidi as a, as a green oasis, and I still like to think of Heidi as a green oasis um, in the middle of suburbia. Once you're on site, um, it's almost like you're in another another place, another world altogether. So it's it's a very special place, and as you can tell from what I'm saying, I'm, I'm extremely fond of it. <laughs> a green oasis and also a cultural oasis as well. Yes. 
For more information about the Heidi Museum of Modern Art's summer season and also its 2021 programming and dates and details about reopening and uh, guidelines to ensure that it is COVID safe, uh, you can jump online, www.heidi.com.au for all the information you need. And uh, uh, I'm looking forward to a return visit as soon as I can. Leslie Harding, the Artistic Director of Heidi Museum of Modern Art, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Richard. Look forward to seeing you out there. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 